Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from DC and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Ballpoint Pen edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I am Felix Salmon of Fusion. How many ballpoint pens do I own? A lot. How many ballpoint pens do you? I, although I'm not even sure that ownership is really a concept which applies properly to ballpoint pens. Maybe the only thing like left that people can like freely pass to each other. And like, do you have a pen? Yes. Oh, keep it. You know, like it's used to be true of cigarettes. You could use a bum a cigarette, but now you can't do that because they're like fifteen dollars each. <laughs> but ballpoint pens, you can still do it. You could. Yeah. You, it's a wonderfully free anarchic like all of the all of your anarchist friends God. basically want everything to be like ballpoint pens we are so excited about ballpoint pens that we haven't even managed to introduce <laughs> the episode okay we're launching into or a discussion of them. so okay so kathy o'neill hi is the author of weapons of math destruction jordan weissman hello jordan hi is the money box <laughs> columnist at slate kathy is going to be talking to us about Bond investing, which is actually kind of fascinating, and Jordan is going to be talking to us about the one and only, the unique, the amazing, the rather oleaginous Anthony Scaramucci. Is that a swear? No, what does no, that mean? Oily. Oh, okay. Oily. Yeah. Like he's, oh, like Olio? Yeah. Okay. I, think he, I think that was a, a dig at the Mooch's hair. That, oh. uh, he, he, he always used to give me grief about my hair. That, um, About he, your hair, my hair, yeah. He because um, it's not greasy enough. He, he, yeah, exactly. He was like, your hair's not greasy enough. It sticks up in weird directions. It does. I, li- Felix's hair does stick. Up literally, every time he would see me, he he would be like, you have shit hair. <laughs> <laughs> and now that man who told you you have shit hair is going to the White but House. But you're going for that, I assume, the sticking up thing. I I just I really. Don't care as much about my hair as Anthony Scaramucci. This is something which the Mooch has in common with the present elect. But we will come to <laughs> to to the relative merits of the hair of Anthony Scaramucci and Donald Trump later in this episode. Because first of all, we have to talk about ballpoint pens. Yes, we do. Because this Felix is, is so excited. I'm about this. so excited I, about I, ballpoint I, pens. I want a little, a little behind the scenes. <laughs> I just want to say that I read this article that Felix sent us, and I immediately bought a bunch of ballpoint pens. So, just just so you all know, Wait, you, for money, 
online. I was like, I gotta get these. Because okay. I just feel like ballpoint pens are the kind of thing which you just pick up for free like, in hotels. Okay, so I almost cried. We, we got an email from Felix being like, just so you know, I am obsessed with ballpoint <laughs> pens right now. With no further explanation, just saying we have to discuss I had it. already sent out this email. You just okay. hadn't read it. But anyway. I didn't see it either. I hadn't seen this this ghost email, apparently he thinks he yeah. sent out. So anyway, he we are all sitting here wondering why on earth is Felix so obsessed with ballpoint pens? Felix, why don't you explain to well, us so, right now? Well, part of, so I can highly recommend this piece on the outline this week which is just an ode to the ballpoint pen um there is a very small number of items in this world where the best version of that item is also the cheapest version of that item and if you spend more you get lower quality um and ballpoint pens are pretty much the best pen that you can have they work great they work upside down that you don't need to faff around with ink cartridges like they do they work in space do work in space that's yeah, that's amazing they work in space and and they're super simple and they're cheap and they are ubiqu- I mean the fact that you bought ballpoint pens I'm still trying to get over this I, I ha- honestly look, don't-, don't get me wrong I have 50 ballpoint pens in a huge box next to my front door because you never know yep. when you'll need one but they were the right kind the exact brand that, that that's great and this guy said so much about which is Bic Cristal Bic- I like to pronounce it Cristal Cristal like the champagne <laughs> What one one Just so I had ballpoint pens I used everywhere. To, I actually spent years with this massive pile of ballpoint pens sitting next to my desk because there was this company which decided to get a bunch of ballpoint pens printed up with their URL on the side and they they were marketmovers.net okay okay and I had this blog called marketmovers um they were like .org or I was .net or something. I, I had registered the .net of the domain and they got them printed up with .net rather than .org or the other way around. And they wound up with all of these pens which directed people to the to my blog by, nice. by mistake instead of to their own website. And so they emailed me and said, we have all of these pens which are completely useless to us. Do you want them? I was like, okay. And so I had <laughs> a, like a thousand market movers ballpoints <laughs> until eventually I just threw them out because, you know. You threw them out? Like, they were just taking up space okay Okay. so our aside from felix's personal travails with ballpoint pens so there's also sort of an interesting engineering marvel here okay so yeah so this is this is the thing which i learned this week and fascinating is there's an excuse to talk about the the ballpoint pens ballpoint pens are it turns out an unbelievably high-tech thing for something which is so cheap and so you and by the way in terms of ubiquity here like listeners I want you to do something. How many ballpoint pens do you think are manufactured in China alone every year? Just think about that question while that's we like, are talking about ballpoint pens. That, we'll answer it at the end of this segment. That, that's like a, an insane version of asking people to guess the number of jelly beans in a jar. Like, there's no one who's going to get that. Well, I mean, within an order of magnitude. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, okay. so, so we know, you know... Like do it any way you like. How many people are there who like can read and write? How many ballpoint pens do they have? You know how much? How many ballpoint new ballpoint pens do they wind up getting every year? How many ballpoint pens lose it? are created uh, are manufactured in um, China every year? It turns out that the Chinese manufacturers of ballpoint pens make basically nothing on this. They make a, a profit of um, one tenth of one yuan, which is about one cent. Um, per ballpoint pen. And the reason for that is because 
the intellectual property and the in the high tech bit of the pen is in the tip of the pen, and has been jealously protected by the Japanese and successfully and successfully yep. and Japanese for. Yeah. decades have had a lock on ballpoint pen technology, which is incredibly difficult. And you need to do like 20 different things to steal to be able to get it to become yeah. a ballpoint pen tip, which no one other than the Japanese know how to do. Are we talking yeah. about that little well, tiny ball in the ballpoint pen or yeah. the whole tip? Yeah, and it's specifically well, the steel itself. It's how do you make this kind of steel Yeah, the balls, balls are just balls. Anyone can make balls. But the question is, how, how, can you, <laughs> how can you make the ball like get covered in ink and roll around yeah. smoothly inside <laughs> the tip? Inside the tip. And how yeah. do you how do you make steel that can be manipulated and cut in all these different ways and will still be durable enough at the same time to, I think it's like 800 meters of writing they have to do or something. Right. So you need something that can be very malleable, but very, very durable. And apparently this technology has been, like Felix said, a, a trade secret for a very long time. And I, now, I'm just imagining the yeah. machines at the like at the places where they're trying to invent this technology of like machines that are like writing things. It's <laughs> like, like, oh, like that a, only yeah. lasted 750 so, meters. So I, I have a question, Felix. Now, when I read this, what I took away from it is that this is not patented technology. This right. is see, so this is actually a really interesting. This is a IP, trade secret. Yeah, that's a really interesting IP story, right? Because the way we typically think of companies safeguarding their IP is by patenting it, and so no one else can use it. But this is an example where actually it was it's been effective just to not patent it, and, just to and, keep and it you in the dark. Know that if the Japanese had filed a patent on this, then the Chinese would just have copied it. Exactly. Somehow would have figured out a way. It's sort of like Colonel Sanders' secret recipe, right? Like it's that approach. To to guarding your I mean, the point IP. of patents is like you. You're, it's not secret. It's just that you have to pay for it. Exactly. To use it. And so and so here's the okay. So here's the answer to the question. The answer to the question is that China manufactures thirty eight billion oh ballpoint God. pens every year. That's like there are only seven billion people in the world, and most of them can't read and write. You know, or not most of them. A lot of them can't read and write. Um, it's an astonishing number. And the Chinese... Like six for each person. The Chinese government looked at this astonishing degree of like manufacturing volume and said, this is ridiculous. The fact that we're making <laughs> 38 billion pens a year and making no money, and the Japanese are making all the money because they have this trade secret. So the Chinese government started a major, like, you know, a bit like other governments say, like, we're going to reinvent nuclear weapons. The Chinese government said, we're going to reinvent ballpoint pen tips. And we're just going to start from scratch and work out how to make these things. It took them five years to do it. But after five years of intensive R&D and God knows how many millions of dollars, they actually have now developed this technology. On so how many, pen how many pennies are they going to make now? Per pen. Much more. So anyway, the, the, so, so the, the news is, the news from Xinhua this week, um, is that Taiwan Iron and Steel Group, or TISCO, says it has, it has mastered the production of steel components for pen tips after trying for five years. And this is going to revolutionize the economics of the ballpoint pen industry. But the idea that Something is like which we just don't think about and we use every day, like a ballpoint pen, which is just one of those things as you say, which has basically a value of zero and it's it's something which you can't really have a property right in because it's just like something which comes and goes and you don't really is it turns out to be like just really high tech and in and protected by Secrets. Well, you know, there's the also the a segue that I've been looking for to talk about yeah. the Amazon reviews of the big pen. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. wait. <laughs> I
Okay. Uh, I, this I, I, this I, I need to. I, hear. I have one more highbrow point to make. Okay, but let's one, go. Uh, with, let's go with those first. And oh no, we'll, no, do the highbrow point okay, first. So please. just one other point, which is this is a really interesting um, small example of China moving up the value chain in in manufacturing, and I think this is actually as tiny and kind of out of nowhere as the story sounds, it's actually a really, really positive sign for China that it, it can do this because the way China has typically gotten more advanced is it is it steals technology, right? It gets a, a manufacturer to come to China and it gives them their IP and then that get, kind of diffuses throughout other factories. This is a case where China said, well, we can't steal the ballpoint pen technology, so we have to reverse engineer it and figure it out. So it, it shows that they act like... They're, they're, you know, chem they're chemists. They're, they're people in the steel industry were able to do this and uh, to, to, to come up with whatever chemistry they needed for the steel. That, that's a sign of them getting better and getting smarter at things like R&D. And that actually bodes well for their future. So that's my little aside here. Now about why. Yeah. The, yeah. The okay. So, I mean, it really def definitely plays off of what Felix was saying, which is like people think of ballpoint pens as so ubiquitous that they don't take them very seriously okay so if you look on if you look on <laughs> <Au> contraire <laughs> if you look on amazon.com at like the frequently asked questions around like the bic crystal pen mm -hmm. there's a lot of questions that are que asked and answered a lot of them um and way more than you would might expect there's there and and they're strange and i i finally figured out by reading enough of them that the source of the strangeness is that Bic actually came out for a pen called Bic for her. Oh, oh yeah, the yeah. pink one, pink. right? That was a great and, one. Like, and the idea of being like marketed to women because it goes back to this: like, people don't even think of them as actually having identities at all. So the idea of having the a, gendered ballpoint, right? So, <laughs> so the the of course we all know that the Amazon reviews of Bic for her are hilarious. Yeah, so everybody yeah. should read all of them. But it just basically has leaked onto all ballpoint pen Amazon reviews. A bit like a broken ballpoint. Yes, the ink is spreading <laughs> nice, everywhere. Nice. It took a second. They're all like, oh, do you think I can use this big crystal pen even though I'm just a woman? <laughs> you know, things like that. Oh, but I did. I do have one quote from this, the original article that I hope we post on our, our front page. Um, the guy who wrote it was like so in love with this big crystal pen. He, his, my favorite line from that article is, I'm not here to tell you how to live your life. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, buy yeah. this pen. By, by, so Felix is going to tell you how to live your life I, I, only I'm, by yeah, Bit Crystal pens. Bit Crystal pens, man. They are they are one of the great achievements of modern civilization. Go steal a few because honestly, I'm, I'm sure they're just lying around very close to you. I've got some. You. you can borrow. I should add just to you know, on in the um, interests of journalistic accuracy and full disclosure, that not all ballpoint pens can write upside down and in space, but I'm sure the Bit Crystal can. <laughs> <laughs> what can't it do? Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for writing to us at our email address, which is slatemoney at slate.com. Thank you particularly to Ronnie Ann Himmel, who wrote in with a question and said, We've been told how dangerous to our financial health bond funds can be amid rising interest rates 
although how much rates will go up is still to be determined. And yet, here I sit in a couple of them, along with a mix of other types of investments. I keep thinking that with turnover and bonds maturing, the new bonds added to the fund mix should at least help ameliorate the effect of rising rates on the fund's value. Um, And also, do they provide a buffer for that time when rates come down again? Am I hopelessly self-deluded? Ronnie, you are not hopelessly self-deluded. As everyone always says, you know, you need a mix of stocks and bonds. But Kathy, start telling us about this whole concept of investing in in bonds. And is Ronnie right about this idea that, like, investing in bonds is a bad idea when rates are rising? So, yeah, the answer is it really depends. Um, Thank you, Kathy. Yeah, yeah. It, we'll <laughs> Moving get... on to Anthony Scaramucci. <laughs> it's... Look, it turns out that that bonds, even though they're considered a boring asset in some sense, are actually a little bit complicated. So uh, bear with us, but we're gonna I'm gonna go through like a little tiny bond clinic that we're all gonna enjoy about the basics of bonds. So the first point is you should think of a bond as a contract. It basically is a sort of schedule of cash. Um, cash flow to you. Like if you own the right. bond, you're going to get cash flows. Coupons. And they're mostly called coupons. And the last the last one, which is like the usually the biggest one by far, is called something else. Principle. Thank you. Um, I don't know the terminology, but it's, it's important not to know the terminology, <laughs> but to know it. how it actually works, right? So for the most part, and we're going to start with that, although we'll, at the very end we'll switch up. For the most part, when you buy a bond, like you know exactly how much money you're getting at each Every six months, you get like your $2.50. And then at the end of 10 years, you get your last $2.50 coupon payment and your $100 back. That's right. Okay. So that's what a bond is. Now, the next thing is, how much is a bond worth? And that's a very, very important thing. And it's counterintuitive. So we'll just do it really slow. It's the net present value of future cash flows. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, But the important thing is that the thing about pricing of bonds is that it depends on the interest rates, and when interest rates go up, the price of the bond goes down. And I'm gonna, I'm, I'm like, even though I'm a mathematician, I can never get sign errors right. So I'm gonna depend on you two to explain that. So, so okay, this is- so here's a, a pretty basic way to think about it, right? If you buy a $100 bond with a five percent coupon, right, you're getting eventually you're getting 5% interest, right? On that $100 bond. But then let's say interest rates go up and all of a sudden interest rates go up to 10%, right? Well, you could buy a $100 bond and get a 10% for $100 and get a 10% interest for the same price. That old bond that's sitting around, that's just giving you 5% on $100, that's not worth as much anymore. So you've got that bond sitting there. What are you going to do? How do you get rid of it? Well, so if you sell the if you sell your old bond with 5% with a 5% coupon for less, the yield goes up. So even though the coupon is the same, it's still you still get a ten you can get a ten percent yield on it. So it's, And so the way, yeah, and so basically five dollars is always ten percent of something. That's a nice way of saying so, it. So, you know, if you're so five five dollars is always ten percent of something, and so you need to basically bring the price of the bond down. And when we talk about interest rates, this is the main thing that we're talking about. Well, when we talk about interest rates, what we're talking about is something which is true across all bonds. So whether the bond was issued today or whether the bond was issued five years ago, the bonds all basically have the same interest rate. We're going to ignore credit. And interest rates are constant. So if I have a treasury bond, if I have two treasury bonds and they both mature in 2023 and one of them was issued yesterday and the other one was issued in 1994, then 
they will still both have exactly the same interest rate. And the way that that interest rate is equalized is through the price mechanism. So the one with the higher coupon will cost more and the one with the lower coupon will cost you, cost less. Okay, great. So we have In this idea value. that if you that as interest rates go up, prices go down. You're like the things that used to be worth more are now worth less. Um, and that's a problem for people like our, our listener who's like, oh my God, I have all this money in bonds. And literally interest rates can't go down. They have to go up. So this is bad for me. Um, but it's important to realize that not everyone um, invests in bonds in order to care about their price per se. A lot of people invest in bonds because they actually want that money in the future. And they've they've already planned their expenses around getting that principal and maybe those coupons in the future. So I just that's an important distinction to make. There's there's a different way of two different ways of holding bonds, in other words. There's holding a single an individual bond to maturity, or there's investing in bond funds. And bond funds are really different. And and the basic difference is just like hold to maturity versus mark to market. So the value of your bond today fluctuates according to whatever the interest rates are today. If you hold it to maturity, you will get your principal back. But yes, what a bond fund does, or even what a bond does for that matter, is it will have a value on a day-to-day basis and that value will fluctuate. And when interest rates are going up, that value will go down. The question is, and the really, really important question is, is how fast are interest rates going up? Because if interest rates go up slowly, you're basically fine. You're, the price of the bond will go down a little bit over time, but you're still getting all of those coupon payments along the way, and the coupon payments make up for the price fall. So, you know, if the price goes down by a buck, but you get three bucks in coupon payments, you still wind up making $2 on the thing. If interest rates rise sharply, then maybe the price has gone uh, gone down by 10 bucks and you only make three bucks in coupon payments and then you've lost $7. That's, that's extra true if you take those coupon payments and reinvest in these new higher interest rates because then you're And that's sort of exactly up. what Ronnie was talking about is that as you roll over... So there are two ways of base, that bond funds basically make money in a rising interest rate environment. One is by taking those coupon payments and their cash flows and reinvesting them in at the new higher, rate. higher rates. And so that's good. Um, and the other way, which is similar, which is basically the flip side of the same coin, is by what's known as reducing the duration. If you have a bunch of short-dated funds, which mature soon, so like let's say your principal payments are coming up in a few months or in like one year, then you can just wait until those principal payments arrive and then reinvest that. Um, whereas if your bonds don't mature for 30 years, if you have a bunch of long bonds in your portfolio, then the the price and the value of those bonds can go down quite a lot and you're not going to be able, they're not going to be cash flowing so much as as their price is falling so when interest rates rise you're you want to be what's known as at the short end of the curve you want to have um short duration bonds which are maturing in just like a few months or a few years when interest rates are falling you want to be at the long end of the curve you want to have bonds which are dated way way out because that's how you make lots of money um on the price going up when interest rates go down. Yeah. So like, I, I think most people imagine that you buy a bunch of bonds and you have like a portfolio of bonds. But I think the way 
that bond index funds work is that the people who manage those funds actually are in charge of getting rid of some fund, uh, some bonds and putting new funds, new bonds in on a sort of daily or weekly basis. And they get to control what's called the duration, which is what you're saying. Like how long from now are these bonds actually going to pay out? <clears throat> and by the way, there's very few um, bond index funds. There are lots of bond funds. And one of the big differences between the stock market and the bond market is that in the stock market, you can just say, I want to buy everything. I want to buy the index. And you can just buy the index and it's easy. Um, that's because there's a relatively small number of stocks. In the S&P 500, there are 500 stocks. You can literally buy every one of those 500 stocks quite easily. There's effectively an infinite number of bonds out there. So bonds don't work the same way. There is something called the Barclays Aggregate, which is like the most common bond index, but it's not particularly investable. And then there are lots of different flavors of bond funds. So there are treasury funds, there are municipal bond funds, which have various tax um, advantages. There are corporate bond funds, there are short-dated funds, long-dated funds. And most of these funds are actively managed, as you say, by people who are trying to sort of maneuver their way up and down the curve in order to be able to get high, the highest returns. So the last thing I'll just mention, um, actually I have two more things, but is that we, we have this conversation regularly on Slate Money about like how fast are interest rates going to rise. And our general consensus is that interest rates aren't going to rise that quickly. I and mean, if, we might be wrong. And if interest rates don't rise very quickly, then you don't have anything to worry about. And then the other really important point is that when we talk about rates rising, what we're talking about is sh overnight rates, very, very, very short-term rates, which are the rates which are set by the Federal Reserve. And the relationship between short rates and long rates is, to put it mildly, complex. Mm -hmm. If the Fed raised rates by like two percentage points tomorrow and hiked them up super high, what would happen to 30-year bond rates? They would probably actually go down rather than up. Yeah, there is a complicated relationship, but so, there, but so, there is know, a relationship. But, but, but it's not obvious what the relationship is. And so often people wind up buying long-dated bonds because they think that they actually have that, that no matter what happens to interest rates at the short end of the curve, the rates at the long end of the curve are going to be a little bit more stable. That's not always true, but it's sometimes true. So here's my bottom line for our listener. Um, first of all, it seems like you're in... Um, you're not expecting to hold these bonds till maturity. So you are going to be losing well, bond money. Funds, bond funds, by definition, have no maturity. They just exist in yeah, perpetuity. Yeah, right. So he doesn't have individual bonds that he's waiting to pay out. Right. That would be the best case where he's like, don't, no, don't care. Um, I'm just saying like he wouldn't be in shits up shits creek if he had that. If he knew exactly what when the money was coming and he had plans for it. Like so it was that's, a fixed income thing. Right. He was just, yeah. Um so he's not in the perfect situation, but I wouldn't worry too much assuming that that the interest rates don't go up very, very quickly. The last thing I'll say is if you go back in time, there are things called floating rate bonds. Um, and for floating rate bond funds, um, which you, which actually their their coupons actually depend on the going interest rate. So then you have to you can worry about this even less if you are in those. So yeah, and my main takeaway here is basically the same thing that I've been saying all for the entire history of Slate Money, which is. In terms of investments, what you want is a kind of set it and forget it strategy. You know, invest in broad stocks, broad funds. Now, you know, you, depending on your age and your risk profile, you might be more heavily weighted towards equities and more heavily weighted towards bonds. The standard weighting is 60% equities, 40% bonds. If you're more risk averse, you might want more bonds. If you're more, if you want more risk, you might want more equities. But if you have that standard 60-40 or any kind of ratio, 
and that's what you think is working for you in terms of risk profile, do not change that just because you think that rates might be rising. That ratio, it, like the idea that rates go up and down is built into that ratio. It Bonds still make sense even in a rising interest rate environment. Whatever you do, don't start thinking, oh my God, rates are rising. I should sell all my bonds and put it into stocks because like stocks are still a lot riskier yeah, than bonds. Yeah, totally. And the last thing I'll say is that you know, the guy was the the listener asked, maybe rates will go back down. And like, mm -hmm. that's actually totally yeah. possible. If Trump destroys the economy somehow or yeah. some crazy shit goes down, like you want those bonds, man. Yeah. <laughs> People have been assuming that rates are going up for many, many years and they yeah. haven't Home done that. Started. Talk to of. Larry Summers and his, you know, future forwards at Harvard University. It was this massive billion dollar bet that rates were going to go up and he lost a billion dollars. I wonder if that's why he's gotten so, so hard on this secular stagnation like thesis. <laughs> if that's actually all just the scarring from his bad bet at Harvard <laughs> setting in. I just realized that the listener who wrote in is probably a woman. I was thrown off by her first name, but her second name is Anne. <laughs> <laughs> so I apologize for saying he. Okay, enough of bonds. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. So in my long and boring career as a financial blogger, I managed to piss off various people over the years, but no one, with the possible exception of Larry Summers, the aforementioned Larry Summers, has been quite as spectacularly pissed off by me as Mr. Anthony Scaramucci. Does it go beyond the hair? Yeah, it goes beyond the hair. Um, Jordan, who is Anthony Scaramucci and why do we care about him? Well... Up until recently, Anthony Scaramucci was a, a character in, in the hedge fund world. He runs this uh, firm or fund, a fund of funds called Skybridge Capital. Um, but more recently, we care about Anthony Scaramucci or the mooch as the entirety of finance Twitter refers to him because he was a big booster of Donald Trump's. And now after being one of his chief surrogates on CNBC and uh, sticking with him through thin and thick and thin. Uh, he's heading and helping fundraise for him. He's heading to the White House. He's essentially going to be playing, it looks like, the Valerie Jarrett role. Like I've heard and, so many different people seem to be playing this notorious Valerie yeah. Jarrett role, I've, including never, Omarosa. Who's yeah, Valerie Jarrett so and who's Omarosa? So <laughs> Valerie Jarrett is, a lot of people would say, she was a very, very quiet um, a senior advisor in the White House, but uh, a behind-the-scenes power broker who had been with the Obamas for years and years and years, dating back to their Chicago days. And a lot of people would... You know, she was one of the last people in the room kind of, you know, with with the president and the first or sometimes probably the first lady as well. Um, and, you know, if you wanted to get to Barack, he could go through Valerie Jarrett. Um, so they're saying that, you know, he will and he'll be playing a similar role, um, but more sort of inter he'll be sort of a, a bridge to the business and finance community, which. You know, maybe for Anthony might not be the worst thing because he's sort of made his name as a more than anything, a really loudmouth networker. But, I mean, it's not like Donald Trump needs a bridge to the business and finance community. He already has Gary <laughs> Cohn. Oh, <yeah. laughs> I mean, Gary Cohn has 
more and better connections than Anthony Scaramucci could ever I, I in a million having, years. Like, yeah. actually, okay, well, okay, I was so having deja vu. Yeah. Didn't we just talk about Cohn and how he's a good schmoozer? Yeah, he is. And, and by the way, the Mooch is also a Goldman alum, along yeah. with Gary Cohn, along with Steve Mnuchin, along with like half the rest of the ca- cabinet. Yeah. If you want a Goldman-dominated cabinet, you are getting... Yeah. Okay, this isn't a cabinet position, but this is a Goldman-dominated White, White House. House. Oh, yeah. Steve Bannon is also yeah. Goldman. I mean, short, short of Lloyd Blankfein, they've basically got a whole the whole roster. But oh, and Dina Powell. Oh, it's right. Yeah, just came in. Yeah. So, Wait, so, so basically, instead of moving to the White House, he could just move to Goldman Sachs. Yeah. It would, be it would actually easier. be easier. It would be a lot easier <laughs> yeah. for him to just move down to West Street. Yeah. They already have a lot of security. Down they, there. they absolutely do. But so maybe we need a little bit more about Anthony Scaramucci. So he back... Back before the financial crisis, he started this firm, Skybridge. And the idea was it was sort of going to be like venture capital for hedge funds. It was going to seed hedge funds. Um, And it wasn't working especially well as a concept. But then after the financial crisis, um, he bought uh, Citigroup's uh, hedge fund unit. Okay, so so basically what happened is Skybridge failed. Yeah. It was a a miserable (laughs) failure. And so searching around for a pivot... Um, he still had group, a lot of money. Sit, well, no, he didn't have any money. This is this. So the one like really kind of smart and clever thing that that the Mooch did was that Citigroup was in fire sale mode. It needed to sell off assets very very quickly after the financial say, um, crisis because a it was basically because it was being forced to by the government, and the Mooch didn't have a lot of money, but the. But Citigroup did happen to have this fund of funds, which, for whatever reason, had done pretty well um, over the preceding years. I need to interrupt to say that a fund of funds is a hedge fund that invests in other hedge funds. Yes. So basically, you pay um, Anthony Scaramucci um, like 1.5% a year on top of the two and twenty that you're in, that you're paying the hedge fund managers who he's investing in, it's just a way of like piling fees upon a fees, and it makes zero sense yeah. to anyone. But in any case, the Citigroup funded funds had done quite well, and so the Mooch bought it in a kind of mortgage situation. Basically, he didn't put a lot of money down, but he promised that he would pay them back over time from the profits of the business, which he did, and. He is the consummate self-publicist that he wound up going on television a lot and pretending to be a hedge fund manager, which he's not. Um, he doesn't actually r- make any investment decisions himself. He has people who work for him who do that. So whenever he's on the television going, oh, yeah, I think that you know, we should rotate into commodities or something like this is all just <laughs> noise. So he, he did make he did make one good decision with with. His fund of funds, which, which is, was, like, which is he, he bought the track record. So now yeah. he can tell everyone that his fund of funds has this amazing track record because before he bought it, it did very well. Let, well. Me, let me ask another question. So a lot this gets repeated in the financial media all the time that he made a, a quote like savvy decision after like around 2010, 2011 to focus on hedge investing his money, his clients money in hedge funds that had bet on housing recovering. And so that's why in the last few years it actually got pretty good returns because he basically figured house prices had to go up from their bottom. It, did he now was that actually his decision making or was that? Oh no no. Like, okay. Anthony Scaramucci does not make any investment decisions. Okay. okay. So I, so it was statistical comment. Yeah. Like all these motherfuckers in finance, right? <laughs> okay. They they absolutely. Is that a statistical term? <laughs> They absolutely benefit from survivorship bias where like all their stupid ass decisions are forgotten and they're one 
lucky decision is remembered and they're like, oh my God, you're a fucking genius. Yeah. Well, and, and in terms of being remembered, um, this is the one thing which the Mooch is better at than anything else. Like, if you, like, you can't forget the guy. The guy is ubiquitous and he created this thing called the Salt Conference. Yes. Which is this sort of annual bacchanal in Las Vegas where he pays everyone from Jewel to Lloyd Blankfein hundreds of thousands of money. Train, well, the, train, train and Maroon 5 were also entertainment. Um, wow. <laughs> and, and he's very good at getting ex-presidents to turn up and he pays them large checks to give speeches and and has lots he's of expensive dinners. with wine. He is the guy who you know, for many years hosted the Davos wine tasting dinner and spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on expensive wine so that people could get together and drink wine. And Is this how you got wait, under so, his skin? Wait, That so, was how I initially got under his skin. Wait. I called it the most obnoxious party in Davos and he didn't like that. <laughs> that's a really, that's high praise. Wait, so, but people have also given him some credit for this conference business because again, they, now you can feel, as soon as I'm done, feel free to tell me this is bullshit. But the the, the line is that Essentially, the banks had stopped giving their conferences right after the financial crisis. And so he saw an opportunity to kind of create some big bacchanal in Las Vegas, where since there was nothing else going on on the circuit, people would show up for this random hedge fund of funds, you know, event. So is there some truth that maybe he because this is a profitable thing he does every year. Well, I mean, maybe wait, there wait. was some canny decision making uh, on his part. Who says it's profitable? Uh, he says it's profitable. And you believe him? Oh, <laughs> God. I mean, I so guess, he's a salesman, basically. He is a salesman, yeah. and I don't for a minute believe that salt is profitable. Okay. Um, I believe that it's a way, uh, it's it's a huge and expensive branding mechanism for Skybridge and for Scaramucci. He is now going to divest himself, not only of Skybridge, but also of salt. Um, he's going to have to find buyers for both of them. I'm going to be very, very interested to see who has any interest in buying salt because I don't think it's a profitable operation. Even if it is, it probably depends entirely on him, his personality, getting people Yeah, there. Salt Sons the Mooch. Who, yeah, who's going to go to that? Salt Sons the Mooch. I can't believe we didn't call <laughs> but, the episode that. <laughs> so I do want to say what, uh, just one more thing in, in favor of like, you know, his his canny instinct, at least for timing. You know, we talked about how with, with Mnuchin, um, Benning not to be confused with the mooch. With Steve, <laughs> the mooch, mooch is not, not Mnuchin. Mnuchin. Yeah. So we talked about how <laughs> Mnuchin sort of made a a very low cost and uh, but uh, potentially profitable bet with Trump, right? That you know, for not too much effort on his part, except for some maybe reputational capital, he was basically rolling the dice for a big role at, in the upcoming administration. Now he's going to be Treasury Secretary. The Mooch, not to be confused with Mnuchin, um, is also, he sort of made a similar bet, right? Like now he's going to be in this sort of, you know, gatekeeper role in the Trump White House where all sorts of business people are going to have to come through him. It means that his network is going to get even bigger and he's going to know more people and he's going to come out of this with even even more powerful connections. So, I mean, so this is the classic revolving door play, right? Is that he has whatever level of success he's been able to build up at Skybridge and he's looking at his business and he's saying, well, I can try and continue to make it grow, but my returns haven't been great for the past couple of years and it's going to be a bit of a hard slog. So maybe the smart thing to do is to sell it, go into the revolving door for a few years, and then when I come out of the revolving door on the other side and go back into the private sector, then now suddenly I'm covered in Trumpian fairy dust and I'm going to be able to make lots and lots of money. 
I just don't know that Trumpian fairy dust is going to be worth that much. I'm barfing over here. We'll see. We'll see. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. I've got a number. What's your number, this Kathy? It's a really exciting number to me. I don't know if you guys already know this, but um, there was a Gallup poll um, recently that found that 50% more, give or take, um, depending on the, how it's asked, um, 50% of people wanted the Obamacare to be removed, to be repealed. Okay, that's sad. But 58% of, of Americans want instead to have universal health care. Single payer. Let's do it both. Let's repeal and replace with universal health care. That's, le- that's exactly what I tweeted when I found this number. <laughs> My number is 23 million, which is the number of dollars that Jeff Bezos just spent on the largest house in Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. It's it's formerly the Ooh. textile museum. It's 27,000 square feet. Now, this is the man who famously said when he bought the Washington Post that he was not moving to Washington, it, that the Post people would come out to Seattle and meet with him when they needed to. He has now basically just bought himself a, pier- a $23 million pied-a-terre. And he did that after... Trump was elected. And also, Zuckerberg is looking like he's getting ready to run for office. What the heck, people? This is awful. We're living in a world of... It's the billionaire's world. We just live in it. Jordan. My number is 78,000, which is how many dollars uh, students borrow on average to get a two-year certificate degree uh, from the Art Institute at Harvard University to study such things as acting, dramaturgy, or voice pedagogy. Um, why am I bringing this up? Well, this program, uh, turns out it failed to hit federal standards for uh, gainful employment. The students at on, in this program uh, basically borrowed too much, have to pay too much in debt compared to what they actually earn once they leave, which is about $36,000 typically. Wow. And the Department of Education put in place these gainful employment rules basically deal with for-profit universities, mm-hmm. which famously loaded up students with debt um, who uh, who were then unable to repay it because they weren't getting their job as a cosmetologist or whatever, um, or nurse's aide. So, nobody ever expected it to come to Harvard. Well, so this is the thing. Nobody expected it to come to Harvard. And the only reason that this program actually ended up under the gainful employment regulations is because it's a certificate program. And so Kevin Carey uh, at the New York Times wrote th- this interesting piece suggesting that, well, if this program, which really isn't that different from your typical MFA in a lot of ways, is failing these rules, it would be really, really interesting to see the, the Department of Education extend these to more nonprofit uh, t- uh, traditional master's programs because yeah. they may also be failing it. So, you know, I was joking that he's basically declaring war on MFA programs, but I don't know, maybe it's time to declare war on MFA programs. I, I'm, I'm going to stand up for the Yale MFA. I feel like, you know, it would pass. I have no empirical reason to believe that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, go, but you know, I'm happy to bash Harvard and, and all of the ridiculous things that Larry Summers did when he did there. But I feel like Yale is. is it's is interesting okay. to me. I mean, just one small comment, but it's interesting to me that it's about the amount of average debt the students take on versus the actual price, because that that would be, you know, it would well, tend to make me think that 
where schools where they're like people's parents pay for them to go to an expensive program somehow are let off the hook. But if you actually well, have to borrow money, that, that's fine though. The government doesn't really care if you're just you know, marketing your services to rich but people. But it might be they, totally useless for the price is the point. It might be. But again, the government's yeah, interest there's here- no, There's no rule against yeah. wasting your money on two years of I guess so. yeah. MFA. <laughs> the, yeah. The, the, the public interest here is in- Is, is in debt. Is in it's debt because yeah. the federal government right. funds it. So that's, that's, that's where the concern really comes into play. Okay. I think that's it. For Slate Money this week, you now know all about the negative correlation between price and yield. You'll remember that for another 45 seconds, and then you will forget it. <laughs> you'll just remember after that, you'll just remember to be confused about it. Just um, <laughs> but thank you for making your way all to the to, to the end of this, and do, you know, start wandering around the street selling pens from a cup. That's, that's, that's basically what we're all going to be reduced to by the time this Trump administration is finished. Um, that and, of course, listening to Slate Money, which will survive the apocalypse like some kind of cockroach. Um, so do subscribe um, to Slate Money using whatever podcasting app. What We're cockroach. We're the cockroach, people. Like You will wake up after the, after the crazy after the- Trumpian holocaust and you will still be listening. And Who doesn't love money? a cockroach? And you, and you will hear the morning, the morning after the nuclear blast. You will still hear that Saturday. Hello! Hello! Um, So many thanks to Zach Dynastine who produced this week and also to the various higher-ups around these parts, Steve Lichtai, Andy Bowers, those types, um, who run the Panoply Network at iTunes.com slash Panoply. We will talk to you next week on Slate Money where I will be in Davos. I'll be up and out, and we should have a very special guest in Davos with us. Looking forward to that. I'm gonna write a tear-stained letter Mark it personal, private news And I hope you'll keep it to yourself And don't go around crying the blues Giving off a bad As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.